You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, July 8th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake, and here with me today is Real Vision co-founder and CEO, Raul Powell. Hey, Raul. Great to have hey, you back Maggie. on the Daily Briefing. We're both back from holiday. Yes, we are. Much needed. But in the environment we're in, it feels like you sort of get like shot out of the cannon, right? Like right back into the, the volatility, even though it's summer. And it's actually... I'm I'm so glad that you're here with us today. It's a perfect day because we had a jobs report today, bond yields rising once again, everybody fretting about the Fed and aggressive Fed. So maybe the best thing to do since it's been a minute since you've been on the the daily briefing is to sort of start big picture. And why don't you just walk us through how you're thinking about the economy and the markets right now? Sure. I mean, there is a lot going on and it's very noisy for a lot of people. So I'll see if I can distill my thoughts down. Um, it really is a follow-on for the last piece I did on Real Vision on the platform and explains to people my macro view, which was that we were very likely to be going into recession. It was likely to upset markets for a period of time. And there were certain markers I was looking for that would usher into the next phase. So I'm going to walk you through in a bit more detail now where we are now. So the first chart that um, I want to show is the Financial Conditions Index, which is basically a combination of commodity prices, the rate of change of rates, and the rate of change of the dollar. That against the ISM, which is the Purchasing Manager Survey, which is a good guide to the business cycle, is a nine-month lead. It's one of the best indicators we've got. And what it shows is financial conditions tightened by the fastest rate in history. And that is leading us to expect that the economy is going to have a wily coyote moment where the ISM goes from 53 down to, let's say, 35. 35 is a severe, sharp recession. Now, that indicates it's already bouncing as bond yields are starting to come off. And I'll come on to this a bit in in a minute and oils come off a little bit. And it kind of suggests we're going to see a sharp recession. Now, last time I spoke, I spoke about previous recessions and times that have looked similar. The the one I've been following the most is 1973, 1974, where we had the Arab oil embargo. That was a supply shock. And what happened was the price of oil screamed higher, the economy collapsed, and the markets collapsed. 
And in that last phase, roughly where we are now, it actually went from 56 in the ISM to 30 in four months. It was the fastest collapse in history um, of the ISM. And that was caused by the supply shock in oil. And I think we got a similar setup. We also had something very similar after World War II, 1947. We had, like COVID, the whole world had been shut down. You reopen it, not enough supply of stuff. Everybody's back into the civilian labor force and the price of goods explodes. Inflation goes up to 20% two years later and, and economic growth collapses. The ISM goes down to 30, similar kind of setup and, um, and the equity market collapses with it. The other one was 2018. We also saw a rise in commodity prices. We also saw financial conditions tightening massively because the Fed had been tightening and quantitative tightening had been going on. And the ISM again collapsed. So, and the equity market went down with it. The Fed pivoted. In all circumstances, the Fed actually changed very fast. They didn't change when inflation rolled over, which is the narrative. They have to see inflation roll over. It actually changes when the ISM crosses 50. I went back and looked at every single time since 1967 that the Fed, that the ISM crosses 50, and the Fed cut every single one except 2016, where they paused. So it tells you that that the economy takes over all precedent when when it comes to the things that they monitor, because then unemployment becomes more important because unemployment means voters and other stuff, even recession. So okay, so where where are the markets where where are we pricing in other stuff? So that's nine month lead. So the next chart to bring up is the ISM new orders less inventories. Um, that's a three-month lead, and that suggests the ISM in the next three months is going to 45, which is a full recession. So it's saying we'll be in a full recession within three months. Okay, that's starting to get interesting for us. Now, the issue here is inventories. So the next chart is the chart of wholesale inventories of durable goods. I mean, that chart is shocking. And there's different types of inventories, and most of them show something similar is that inventories have gone up because everybody stocked because of the supply issue. They overstocked and now demand has gone. Demand has gone because the financial conditions have tightened um, and inflation has, has taken away um, discretionary spending. So now everybody's got too much stock. Now, building of inventories is positive for GDP in the equation for GDP and releasing inventories is negative. Normally, to get rid of inventories, you lower prices too. So that starts to get interesting to say, huh, if they're going to have to clear all this inventory, they're probably going to have to lower prices. So that's the next big debate, inflation. The next part of this equation, I've laid out what I think is demand destruction writ large, and it's already in the data. So then what does that mean for CPI? So if we use the same inventories to new orders ratio, which is the next chart, this leads CPI. Now, CPI, if you can see on this, is crazily elevated. Now, that's because of the Ru Russia situation and some of the supply situation. But it's also not unprecedented. Yes, the level is high. But if you peek on that chart back at 2008, what we had was inventory to sales got to zero and crossed it. But meanwhile, we had this peak in, in uh, CPI still. Now, the Fed were cutting through that, by the way, and they... They did it in other periods too, similar. But that period is telling us again, six months lead time, that CPI should fall dramatically. Now, if I go on to the next chart here, 
it's the chart of commodities. Remember when Peter Zion came on and shocked us all to say we're going through world food shortage? Well, most of the food prices for Western economies have actually collapsed. So the commodity complex overall is down between 20 and 60%. So this is the all commodities year-on-year rate of change. Now, considering oil hasn't gone down a lot, it's only pricing in a ISM of about 54. The actual inflation from commodities has evaporated. And the longer it goes on, even if prices stay the same, the more this will go to negative year on year. So the inflationary effects of the commodity prices, the supply crisis of, of, um, of all of these commodities, agricultural, energy, they're all going out of the numbers super fast. So I think we're teeing ourselves up for a situation where the narrative shifts from inflation and growth is bad to, okay, inflation's coming off, but growth is much worse than we expected. Mm. So what does that mean for markets? So if I look at the next chart, it's actually, I mean, I love the ISM, the business cycle. I don't know why more people don't use this stuff. So the ISM, the next chart versus the NASDAQ, the year-on-year NASDAQ is pricing in the ISM at about 41, which is almost pricing in the full sharp 1970s recession. So it's already priced it in or close to it. Maybe there's another leg lower. The S&P in this terms would be somewhere like about 45, 46, so pricing in a recession. Discretionary stocks, consumer discretionaries are the same as the NASDAQ, pricing in a full recession. The growth end of tech, the really growthy stuff, that's at 39. So that's really pricing in a full recession. So a lot of this is in the price. Now, we hear a lot about people talking about uh, Jürgen uh, Tim has talked about this is the next phase down of the markets is when they the earnings goes down. Mm-hmm. Well, these charts kind of suggest that's already started happening in the price. And yes, maybe there's a final leg lower as they have to price in the even lower ISM that I think is to come over the next nine months. What is also interesting to me is that the markets tend to bottom before the ISM does. So if we go back all the way to 1947, it actually bottomed in line. When we go back to 1974, it bottomed three months beforehand. And if we go back to 2018, it bottomed nine months beforehand. So I can't be extremely bearish equities. I can imagine that there is some more downside to come. Mm. But I can't be very bearish equities. But there are other trades that interest me. Firstly, the cycle I think will be short and sharp, and therefore – we will be looking for the upside in equities in the next three months or so. And I've been buying the growth end of tech because it's the most discounted. And I think that rates won't be rising. So let's go on to the next chart, which is the one that's really interesting because I always say bonds are the truth. But interesting enough, the 10-year bond yield year on year versus the ISM is actually quite mispriced versus everything else. It's pricing the ISM over 60 when everything else is pricing it much lower. The NASDAQ's pricing it at 41, 42. Now, again, when we go back in history, we saw this happen before. It happened in 2001. The market mispriced bond yields and bond yields collapsed. So I, I'm very interested in what bond yields will do in all of this. And I'll come on to another chart in a sec that ties this all together. 
The following chart is the one that is keeping bond yields falling. From falling is oil. Oil has remained elevated, and I'm looking for it to come lower. I understand the supply story, and we'll 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 see the clip from Warren um, Pies mm-hmm. later. But the supply story, I understand, it's not going away fast. But the demand story is probably worse than most people expect. And what's interesting is if I look at the year-on-year change in the dollar, which is blue, which is the DXY inverted, and the white, which is the price of oil, dollar and the oil are usually very correlated. Now, currently, they're not. Now, the DXY is pricing oil at $20, and oil is at $104. So it's telling you roughly the premium that's in for supply issues. It's telling you there's like $80 in the price. So I think that anything, any positive news on the supply side brings oil lower, or any shock on the demand side brings oil sharply lower. So I'm kind of expecting oil to come back into the $80 to $60 range, which again, if you then look back, that would mean that inflation basically evaporates. The Fed, with the headline of oil coming low, it's the last shoe standing in all of the commodity markets, if that comes lower, then the Fed have kind of will see a, a recession and lower prices ahead, and they will pivot, and they will pivot quite sharply. Now, first, you have to go through the narrative what, what a pivot is. First, they'll say, well, we're just going to watch the data, mm-hmm. and then they'll say, maybe we won't do as much QT, and then eventually they'll cut rates. And the market is already pricing rate cuts in for January. I think they might even bring it forward. It might even happen this year. That's kind of how it played out in 2001. So I'm watching all of this, and there are no certainties with any of this. These are all probabilities I'm trying to ascertain. Coming on to the next chart, which ties it all together, that's that financial conditions index again with the ISM against it. And it's showing you where all of these asset prices are pricing right now. So US Treasuries is the most expensive versus where the economic cycle is. And the NASDAQ is the cheaper. Then up is the S&P 500, cyclicals versus defensives, large caps, small caps, high yield spreads. So it kind of tells you the NASDAQ is getting close to be fully priced and the bond market's nowhere near fully priced. And a lot of other stuff's kind of in line. So they, what high yield spreads will probably move lower as the economy slows. And on to my final point before we dig into some of this is this affects crypto too. And if I look at the global money supply year on year against the year on year rate of change of Bitcoin, you can see it's a dominant driving factor of the overall direction. It is not the only factor, but a dominant driving factor. Now, global money supply has been shrinking because everybody's been tightening. So that has reduced um, the price of Bitcoin. So that was the, the crypto winter, was essentially in that chart. The following chart shows that the money supply is cyclical too, and the ISM leads it by nine months. And the ISM inverted suggests that the um, M2 rate of change is going to start rising again. So that basically tells us things like Bitcoin and risk assets, which ties into the NASDAQ being cheap and the exponential aid stocks being relatively cheap. Um, there is a potential big turning point in markets to come. The, what I'm waiting for is that turn in bond yields. Mm. 
Um, I think it's forming yields are forming a head and shoulders top with um, 265 in the 10 years, 275 in the 10 years as the as the neckline. If it breaks that, then we're going back below 2%. Inflation break evens are already falling. So we've seen them fall sharply. Um, and I'm expecting the oil market to show more liquidation. We saw a bit glimpse of that this week where we had some really rough days in oil. And I know there's a lot of oil bulls out there, and I understand the longer-term picture. And Dwight Anderson made this clear in his interview is the thing that will pause the longer-term picture is a demand destruction. And Warren talks about it as well. I think we are going to see more demand destruction in a shorter, sharper period of time than maybe oil steadies again back at $80 to $100 range. But the rate of change won't be as high. It won't keep going up at 100% increments, which means inflation is not as high. So the inflation we get out of this after this recession is going to be much less than people are expecting. People are over-extrapolating past prices and rate of change than current prices. So that's basically my macro view is maybe a bit more pain to take, really unclear, um, one gush lower. But the thing that will happen is that we need to brace ourselves for the economic impact. It's going to start to become clear to people, clearer than it is. People don't yet believe that story, but I yeah. think it's going to become very clear. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It, it's so interesting. First of all, I just want to say we will, we will link all the charts because I know that people are going to be asking. So we'll put them all somewhere where you can access them and really pull them up and, and dig into some of what Rao was just saying. I think that's super important. So uh, let's unpack some of that, Rao. We've got some questions that are directly related to this. Um, but what, one of the one of the things that's interesting of what you just said is, uh, first of all, I know you've been looking for this, as have some others, and there was so much skepticism. I think we started to see that shift prior to, to the payroll number today everyone was talking about, and this was the change really in the last month, everyone was starting to talk about recession, but now that confusion has entered again because uh, you know of some of the, what I think you would probably say backward looking data. That's right. That's the key thing. Unemployment data is lagging. The ISM employment data has started looking at contraction. There's a lot of data that looks at forward looking contraction of employment. You're seeing the tech layoffs day in, day out. So that's coming. It's not in the data yet because the data is lagged. CPI is a huge lag. The biggest lag of CPI is owner-equivalent owner rents. So these things are all phased, which is why you tend to see after these inflationary bursts, I'm going to say something that might shock people, inflation goes negative. It went negative in 2009. It went negative in 1947. It can go negative just from the year-on-year effects and after such big moves the comps versus the previous year are really hard so to end up with ongoing endless inflation is is almost mathematically impossible the question people's minds are can we get the 70s again where inflation came down and then it came back up again mm. well for that to happen you know that was a demographic demand shock we don't have that this time 
can we have another supply shock? Could China be a big problem? Yes. But we're going to have to move the oil price to 200, 300 to have the same magnitude of price increases with the year-on-year comps. That's that's a really tough call to say that that's the most likely outcome. But again, yeah. there's lots of possibilities out there, not as many probabilities. Yeah. And and the thing is, there are some forecasts. Now, maybe they've been revising it. I think JP Morgan was on the high end of that oil forecast, which is I think is so confusing to people. So let's, let's start with some of the questions. Um, and then I'm going to play a clip in a moment. But um, just speaking to the the mispricing of the bond market, which is so interesting. And a lot of people have been caught out and, and hurt by this who are possibly more short term, who've been looking for that market to move. Bill from the exchange asking, um, since the flash update, 10-year yields have risen while the yield curve inverted even more. Is it a signal? Is it noise? I mean, what do you make of the fact that bonds are, are mispricing it, as you say? Um, look, when the yield curve is inverted and the bond market is doing this, which is still bouncing around, hasn't peaked fully, that should put bonds completely on the radar screen. Because what it's telling you is the yield curve is inverted. Therefore, the probability of recession, which backs up a lot of what I've been talking about, is there. And what you're usually missing is something that changes that equation. And may it be the CPI prints next week. Mm. May it be an ISM print later? It could be anything. We don't know. So you just have to keep watching this. And I, I've i suggested for a while that this 275 level is the key level. We just have to wait. These things take a while to play out. Markets have a lot of noise in, in the interim. I still think bond yields have topped. And you have a longer term perspective, but you were talking about a series of bond and euro dollar bets that you were interested. You're still interested in them. Nothing's changed your mind. No, I put on a whole bunch of bets for Global Macro Investor and um, Pro Macro, Real Vision Pro Macro. And those bets are I'm comfortable with. You know, they it obviously bounced from here, from there. But, you know, I'm looking this thing, if I'm right, and if people remember this from 2019. And 18, when I started the bond trade that time, does you need to give yourself some wiggle room. Things take time to play out. Um, there's nothing in the data to suggest that the bet is wrong. Um, but price action obviously will be the arbiter of the truth in the end. But I'm pretty comfortable with the, with the situation. And as I said, if you look at the chart of 10-year yields, it looks like it's forming a head and shoulders top. But we'll wait and see. You know, mm-hmm. I've had one shot at the bond market, stopped myself out once already. So... Uh, you know, we don't get these things always right. So you mentioned uh, the financial conditions. We had that chart tightening fa- at the fastest rate in history. I think that that is something that's underappreciated right now. And this sort of ties in. You were you spoke with Sam Bagman Free, the co-founder and CEO of FTX, who's really emerged as the white knight, right, providing a backstop for a lot of firms that are struggling through this crypto winter. And the Either two of you. That- Either that or the clever distressed investor who's dressing yeah, himself. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, which he sort of said, stopping contagion that could, you know, uh, ring fence his own his own uh, companies. But um, but he is he is sort of the one coming to the rescue at the moment. Um, and the two of you really talked about this period. I mean, clearly it has been so painful on so many different levels. But a, but interesting conversation that you had about tying it in to the financial conditions. Let's play a clip from that, and then we'll talk on the other side. I mean, it's been an extremely messy, uh, you know, last month, obviously. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things um, is that 
this hasn't been just a crypto phenomenon. Like when you look at, at at what's happening in markets, right? You see similar things happening in tech. You see similar things to some extent happening, you know, all over the ecosystem. Where I, you know, basically you just have a really large, you know, I retrenchment of all of the gains that you know have happened over the last you know year plus uh, in, in markets. And I, uh, you know, it was sort of triggered by the Fed initially by you know, the expectations that rates were going to finally really start rising and rising more than people thought. Um, but at this point, I mean, the current we've seen in markets, I think is out of line with what 3% interest rates would normally represent. Yeah, I mean, I looked at this and actually I, I use, you know, monetary tightening as in the rate of change of monetary tightening plus commodity prices plus inflation, all of this stuff and the dollar. I think it's the largest tightening of monetary conditions in all economic history as far as I can find. And it just happened really fast. So yeah, as you said, this is not a crypto event. This is just a liquidity event. It's so interesting, by the way, that full interview available on our crypto tier on our website, which is free to everyone. You just need an email to register. Um, it, it's so interesting to think about it against that backdrop, Raul. So of course, everyone wondering, is the worst over? Is there more pain to come? Um, based on what we're seeing with financial conditions, you know, what's your thought on that? I mean, where are we in this cycle of pain? So the financial conditions are priced in an ISM of 35. So the pain of tightening is already in the market. So the probability is that the other side of a recession where conditions loosen is the thing that eventually gets tight, uh, priced in. So as Sam kind of suggests is that the markets have now crypto markets, and I showed that with that M2 chart, have priced in this full thing. So it's already there. Mm. Again, the Fed are a kind of noise because it's the actual bond market that does the tightening, not the Fed. So the Fed, wherever they are in rates, is irrelevant because the bond market, you know, pushed it all the way up to 3.6% or whatever it did in 10-year rates, and same at the front end. So I, I think it's a lot of the bad news however much that is, whether it's 80%, 90%, or 100% is in the price. And Sam sees that from the market clearing itself within crypto. You know, how many of the bad positions have been washed out now as we've seen this kind of long-term capital management style blow up where everybody was lending to the same counterparts. And then when the counterpart goes under, everybody goes under. And I've, I've lived through that before. And we talk about that in the interview quite a lot, about how similar it is to long-term capital management with the three arrows capital blow up and how Celsius is linked to it and everything else. So, um, yes, normally these things are towards the end. So it, 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 you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, counterparty risk is, is everywhere. But there was a feeling that the that 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 world was going to be insulated somewhat from that. So from a financial conditions point, it's priced in, but is there sort of lingering, uh, whether you call them credibility issues or just fear or so many of the large players taking a hit, getting hurt? What's the healing process like? Are we going to, because there are these charts and you've showed them. I, I just had a conversation with someone today where you have these bear markets and then it rallies. Is there something else that happened here now because of the breadth of participants or, you know, where the the digital asset market is that's going to make this rebound look different? Or would you expect to see prices resume their climb in the way they have traditionally? 
I don't know yet whether we've seen the low. I think so, and I've been averaging it in um, aggressively, actually. Um, the kind of biggest addition to my crypto bets since 2020 um, into this. But I don't know where the low is. Could a drop in economic conditions cause further short selling or panic? Possibly. You know, I think the low is close, whether it's in or not, I can't tell. But I know from all of my economic work, and I've probably got maybe a 200 charts to back up all of the stuff I showed that suggest the balance of probabilities are that a lot of this has been priced, that we've got the inflation problem is probably a thing of the past, and that economic growth is going to fall sharply. Now, what happens when economic growth falls sharply is we now have this Pavlovian instinct of the market looking forwards and saying the Fed are going to pause and monetary conditions are going to ease. Now, don't forget that financial conditions index that I showed you, the global macro investor one. Well, that prices in commodity prices and the dollar and yields. So if yields start coming lower, commodities start coming lower, and the dollar eventually tops out, which it's not clear that that's going to happen yet, but at some point it will, then you've got all of those reversing. And that tells you that usually that's when the Fed have started reversing course as well. And you think that will benefit, those conditions will benefit crypto as well as Absolutely. other risk assets? Absolutely. Now, there is another scenario that is very real. And the scenario is that I'm wrong that the 1974 short, sharp contraction of the economy and contraction of markets is not that, that it's 2001, two or 2008 all over again. In which case, you get a false rally that goes on for a period of time, and then it rolls over and has another whole set of lows. Those are the 50% sell-off style scenarios. Um, I don't see that in the forward-looking data, because I think it looks sharper and shorter than people expect, but that is a possibility. So it's really hard to call in these things, you know, trying to pick lows and stuff is not easy because, you know, many people got carried out in 2002. I remember it really well. Uh, then 9-11 hit, and then the whole thing rolled over again, and it destroyed people. So, you know, these kind of markets are not easy to trade. The, the bond market tends to be the easier trade, but it's been hard because of the inflation story has been so sticky. But when it gets easier, that's an easier place to make money. Yeah. Really great question, comment from Brad S. on the exchange I want to bring in. I haven't heard anybody really talking about the massive industrial building boom currently underway from what I see driving the truck around the Northeast. I love the anecdotal uh, this is info. Brad, this is Brad, is it? Uh, this is Brad S., yes. Yeah, there are Brad. new projects starting on a regular basis. I don't know if they're all warehouses or some sort of manufacturing. I'd like to know your take on this as it seems new jobs will be created and not hearing anyone talk about it. I don't know. Is it deglobalization? Is it reshoring? Is it infrastructure build? I mean, that that is an aspect. Some people are wondering about that, what it means for growth, but also whether there's some inflationary stickiness around that. Listen, there could be. But we've got to get through a recession first before we start talking about the next cycle's inflation. Now, does inflation settle down to <coughs> 3% or 2.5%? I don't know. But 
I do a long a chart of uh, five year real rates, and they've been declining for twenty five years now. And the trend rate of real rates is about negative one percent. But what Brad is seeing, and you know, Brad has made some programs for us because he he is incredibly smart, and he's all day in his truck looking at observing the economic conditions of the United States on the ground. Is that is definitely to do with uh, with onshoring. Mm. Manufacturing bases, supply lines are changing. Um, I don't. I think it's temporarily good for jobs for construction, temporarily good for commodities because you need stuff to build stuff. But if you look at the Tesla factories, the and the Amazon factories and the warehouses, the robots are winning, and the robots are very, very deflationary. So, you know, we saw this again after World War Two is we had a massive boom, a massive building boom. That building boom actually didn't generate that much inflation in the end. It generated it initially from the supply issues, and then it settled down. Um, what we got was actually decent economic growth. I actually think the backside of this cycle is probably half-decent economic growth if this onshoring continues and we get some fiscal stimulus, which I think is needed at a structural level in both Europe and the US. And I think things like ESG, the the kind of coalescence of capital around that creates more of a boom because it creates technology it creates a change of infrastructure and these are good things i don't necessarily think they're inflationary sure things like copper could have a real tight spot but copper as we've seen type prices in the business cycle first and copper's been going down like a lead balloon as opposed yeah. to a copper balloon not lost on many of our viewers who are in that trade too. We got a lot of questions on the daily briefing about copper. I want to I want to touch on oil because we have a question from Paul, from Jim, from Mark three one three. A lot of interest in oil. Where you think it's going? Before we do that, let's listen. You mentioned Warren Pies before. Jared Dillian and Warren Pies uh, caught up to have a conversation and really a debate around this. You know, pull and pull between supply and demand. Um, Warren from 314 Research, is in the bullish camp when it comes to oil prices. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. We are undergoing a period of demand destruction right now. Uh, and so that's we, we've seen that in some of the, the inventory data on the refined product side. Fine product prices have been extremely high. Uh, about $175 a barrel is what we've been looking at from diesel and gasoline prices. And so demand destruction was kind of inevitable. But on the other side of that, we've seen the Russia-Ukraine crisis opening up a gap between supply and demand that is um, going to be very difficult for the market to solve for just on demand destruction. And that remains our core thesis. So we see um, when the dust settles from everything that's happening over in the Ukraine, we see about a three and a half to four and a half million barrel a day deficit opening up between supply and demand. Uh, and again, the average recession, when you go through your average recession, when you're talking about demand destruction, you get about, you lose about one and a half to 2 million barrels a day of demand that peels, you get peeled off from a recession. So you're still left with a market that could be in, uh, in deficit, which is obviously bullish for prices. That full interview uh, available on our website uh, to all subscribers. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. 
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, specifically, Raul, Mark asking if we're heading into a recession, how far out? Would you estimate oil prices to hit bottom? And what would you look at to confirm that the bottom's in? So I think you're on the other side of this, right? You think the demand destruction will put downward pressure on oil prices. The year-on-year rate of change of oil is identical to the ISM. All assets are. But everything is the business cycle. The business cycle is everything. So therefore, the oil price is likely, not certain, to follow the ISM lower with a lower economy. To Warren's point, demand gets destroyed. It's the rate of change of demand being destroyed that changes the price. Now, and he's right, is the oil market is in imbalance and will be for some period of time. So that tells us that if we do get a sharper fallout of oil because of the economy and demand destruction, and we know that in nine months' time, maybe the economy bottoms, well, then we should be expecting to then see more constructive prices. And that's pretty normal. Now, again, people conflate the level of the price of oil with the rate of inflation. $100 oil equals inflation. $100 oil does not equal inflation. $100 oil in a year's time will actually lead to negative 20% year-on-year rate of change of oil because it got to $120. So the question is, is how far does it go and in what pace does it go in the future? But I think there's a there's a gap between now, with oil market pricing the ISM at about 54, and the ISM going down to 35, where does that put the price of oil? Does, does oil price in the full recession? Probably not, for the reasons Warren says. But it still gives us a risky downside that can catch a lot of people off guard because a lot of people are in oil stocks. If I look down the U.S. sectors – Pretty much everything's down 20% year to date, except oil, which is up 25% year to date in terms of equity sectors. So in a recession, you tend to take money off the table. Those kind of sectors get shot. So just be careful. I understand the long-term thesis. I don't disagree with it. I worry about the from here to there. Mm. Commodities are so difficult for that reason, um, which is why we continue to have folks on to talk about them who are experts in the field, because it, there's a lot of things you have to watch. We haven't talked about the dollar, Rao. Um, it's been super strong. Um, what What is your forecast? You think that th- that turns or ends anytime soon? What, what are you looking at the dollar? I know you've been looking across Asian currencies as well. Um. I guess I'm getting quite concerned. In the short term, less concerned. I think it might uh, the dollar might back off a bit. You know, it's gone, tends to go in these fast moves, then corrects for a while. But, you know, it looks like we are in the dollar wrecking ball cycle, where if we are not careful, we are going to repeat 1985 all over again, which is when we ended up into the Plaza Accord. So uh, I urge anybody to reread the book, The um, Alchemy of Finance by George Soros, because he keeps a trading diary of the whole period of 84 to 85, which was a very similar oil price, recession, blah, blah, blah. But the issue was the dollar. 
And the dollar backed off for a while as the Fed started cutting in 84, um, which was part of his big trade. His big trade was the bond market trade. The, the dollar backed off and then it rocketed higher, which is the kind of way that we see it now. There's a shortage of dollars. And if it rockets much higher, then we start breaking parity against the euro. We start, you know, the dollar yen started moving a lot. This is a bad setup. And there is a probability, and I don't think it's my base case, that we we have a real problem with the dollar. And in which case, we end up with having to have some sort of plaza accord agreement, which is something we should be nervous of, because that kind of agreement is not going to be with the US talking about reducing the dollar as much as others saying we need to move away from the dollar, which is something I've talked about for a long time. You know, one of the whole thesis behind the Bitcoin life raft video that many millions of people have seen is about this very situation of, of the, the strength and the dominance of the dollar. The, do, do, the US economy is 25% of the world's economy and 87% of every single trade transaction on earth. So it's everybody else's problem. And the world has kind of had enough of it. And a lot of people think the dollar dies from weakness, but I think the dollar dies from strength. So we need to be careful. These are very long-term charts I've been using, but if it plays out this way, then either in the next over the next 18 months we get a shocking dollar move or we get respite again and it plays out in two years' time. But mm -hmm. it feels like it's going to come one way or the other. Nothing can stop the dollar milkshake theory playing out. Wow, that's a really big thought to digest. That's one we're going to have to come back and revisit again. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I I remember chasing around Robert Rubin and strong dollars in the U.S. interest, but that things have changed a lot since then. Um, and you're well, right now it is because it's lowering the price of imports. Yeah, but it's not in anybody else's interest. I mean, Germany's now got a deficit, trade deficit because of stuff like this. And yeah. you know, we've already blown up Sri Lanka, and we'll blow up more emerging markets if this continues. So. You know, it's a complex world out there. And what this is telling you is there is a dollar shortage. And in times when monetary conditions are tightening, people want their dollars back. Mm. And if you're a borrower and you need dollars to pay, you've lost revenue because the economy's shrunk and money's less easy to borrow. So what happens is you will pay up for the dollars. And that's what happens. It forces the dollar higher and weaker economic growth. Now, the DXY also year on year works pretty well with the ism and it's currently pricing about 45 which is a recession now so that tells me that we are closer to the end than the beginning of the move but again we could see that spike that one last final spike in the dollar um, and then that would tell me that the, the worst dollar scenario maybe is in due course in a couple of years time Hmm. We have Angela asking, and I think you've touched on this at different points. I'm going to try to squeeze as many in, even though we, we've stretched it. We're going to keep you for a couple couple more seconds. Um, Angela asking, if you had new money to deploy for investing today, where would you put it? You mentioned a couple of the things you're looking at, but but you know, what yeah, are you so most convicted about? I, I'm most convicted um, on averaging in, in cryptocurrencies, which I've been buying. Um, I've also... Um, been averaging in in these growth tech stocks, the ARC type names. I've got a big basket of stuff um, to reduce risk in some of this because it's very risky to buy markets that are down, but they're down 75, 80, 85%. And, you know, technology is not going away. You know, the exponential age doesn't go away because prices have gone to the bottom of the logarithmic channel. So, you know, these are 
two to three standard deviations oversold, they look very attractive to me. But you need to have a long-term uh, framework and you need to be able to understand that you might still be wrong by 20, 30 percent. Who knows? And that not to be an issue because the upside is 10 times that. That's that's how I think about this. In terms of the trade I like the most here and now that is lower volatility, lower risk is the dollar, uh, is um, yeah, bonds. So whether it's TLT or whether it's, you know, whatever flavor of bonds you like. Good to good to make that distinction because you know there are, there are people who are really dug in their camp and and absolute haters on anything related to tech or you know completely married to their commodity view. Um, it's difficult, okay. uh, you know. But this is all about your time horizon. So you're it's saying all, that things that you're looking at, you have to have the risk to take it because there could be it could be messy and the timing is hard to peg down, and or you have to have a longer time horizon for this. Absolutely right. Now, that may also equate to the um, people who have the commodity bets on. You know, they might say, well, we still think the upside is will compensate for any recession downside risk. That's OK, too. Again, my time horizon in the commodity stuff where I'm negative is in the next six months. Mm. I'm not talking about the long term trade. You know, I'm part of my exponential age thesis is the shorter shortage of copper. Now, the lower the copper price comes, the better my entry gets, the better the risk reward is for that whole long-term trade. So, yeah, time horizon really matters to understand what that means um, because people just assume everybody's got the same time horizon as them. Yeah, it's one of the I think is one of the, the one of the biggest problems you see out there. And and likewise, we have people write in asking should they do this? Should they do not do that? But they don't say what their time horizon well, is. Um, and they so, started to, I think, based on these conversations, but it's super important. And, you know, as we've alluded to, coming is the Real Vision Academy, our complete revamp of what education is all about mm -hmm. and how it can be done with the rock stars of finance. It's an unbelievable thing. I'm not going to unveil too much, but it's going to be part of the um, Real Vision memberships. Um, and it is a game changer for stuff like this. All of the questions people have about how do I trade bonds to what do these technical analyst things mean? What what does um, time horizon mean? How do I think about risk management? It's all in that. So if you're watching this, I urge you to go to realvision.com forward slash waitlist. Get on the waitlist for that because I, I've watched the whole course. It is absolutely incredible. And, and it's I think not it's so course, needed it's like right now. Ongoing in yeah. depth. It's so needed for so many people. I read the comments in my Macro Insiders. I read the comments and everyone's like, how, why, what, what does this mean? It's there to address all of this, building macro frameworks to building technical analysis frameworks to portfolio management, to risk management, to what the asset prices are, asset class are, everything. It's all coming. It is. And one of the things is that we have to be our own portfolio managers now to a certain extent. More of the responsibility has fallen on us. And in the in the interviews I've done, I don't know if you're hearing this uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks, one thing that so many are saying is given all the cross currents, given the complexity of these markets, it's not as easy to just dump it in a fund, right? You know, like if you have a feeling about commodities, one large big basket of commodities may not work this time around in these really difficult transition periods. And I think that that's where all of that kind of information can really help people who are trying to figure out, do I take profits? Is now the time to buy? I mean, this is this is the thing and that's I, on everyone's and mind. I can't express it enough how macro this world is. Yep. You know, when you've got the nexus of 
geopolitical supply chains, uh, monetary tightening. This is as macro as it gets. And then you've got the dollar, you know, the big, the king of all assets. This is, it doesn't get more macro. So you have to understand this because every bet you are taking is a macro bet without realizing it. Well put. And and a perfect place for us to end. We're never going to get through all the questions, but we loved having you back on the daily briefing, Raul. Um, you got to have to come back a lot more often given this the situation we're in right now. Absolutely. I look forward to it. I'm going to leave you with one thought because it was the most contentious thought that I've had in a while. I just want to reiterate, having come back from Spain where I lived for 10 years, Spain has the best food in Europe. <laughs> those are fighting words, Raul. I was just in Paris. I don't know. And those are fighting words. <laughs> Spain has the best food in Europe. Americans are all rosy-eyed about Italian food. It's just, it's just all sauces and pasta. Spain, best food in Europe. Full stop. Let's see this Twitter fight and the fight in the comments section. Bring it on. Let, let's for once. Let's have a fight about food and not everything else. Um, Anthony Bourdain um, would have absolutely agreed with you. I think San Sebastian was one of his his favorites. So there you go. Weigh in on your food and give us recommendations if you agree, please, for anyone who's traveling. We need them. Well, great to see you. Thanks so much. We are going to be back here same time Monday with Michael Howe. Have a great weekend, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.